American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Visit us online at ashp.cuny.edu. The Now and Then podcast series is a collection of conversations with scholars and ASHP staff members on topics in history. This is Donna Thompson Ray talking with Peter H. Wood on Monday, November 8th, 2010, about Thomas Day, a Civil War era American craftsman. And Peter, I'd just like to start out asking you to talk about where you're from, your research interests, those kinds of things. Tell our audience a little bit about you, the schools you went to, that kind of thing. I went to Harvard as an undergraduate in the early 60s, and then I spent two years in Oxford and came back to graduate school at Harvard and knew that I wanted to study early American history and the civil rights movement was going on all around me and I tried to find the intersections between black history, which was uh, uh, scarcely a field that existed, and early American history and that led me to early South Carolina. I wrote a book about slavery in early South Carolina and ever since then I've been uh, I've been teaching at, at Duke. I'm now retired but I've taught there for more than 30 years and so my emphasis as an American historian was often on Southern history, on race relations, on early American history. And so I've gone out in different directions from there, but that's always been at the heart of my interests. Who was Thomas Day? And what brought you to learn more about his story? Thomas Day was somebody whom I had never heard of when I arrived at Duke in 1975, and most North Carolinians had never heard of him, but they were rediscovering him. Thomas Day was a free black uh, furniture maker, entrepreneur in antebellum North Carolina, and when he was being rediscovered in the 70s and 80s, um, it was partly by furniture buffs and people who were interested in what he had produced. North Carolina, has always, for a long time, has been a furniture-producing state. And uh, they, there was a fascination, particularly, am- I think, among the, the elites within the state, that here was... A black man they could get behind. That is to say, here was someone who was not a slave, who was an entrepreneur, who apparently owned slaves himself, and all these things in a funny way seemed to endear him to a generation of people who were made anxious by discussions of slavery, uh, to the extent that they actually put a statue of Thomas Day out in front of the History, State History Museum in Raleigh. Um, so the Thomas Day that they had embraced and were telling me about was not someone I was particularly interested in. I had was interested in slavery, which was at the core of the early black experience. And I had been troubled all through graduate school and through my own training at the ways in which 
free blacks had been used as um, I I felt almost as a distraction from the main subject at hand. By definition, free blacks in the South were the exception, not the rule. And so I had tended to pay less attention to them, feel that they'd been studied well by other people, most most impressively, of course, by John Hope Franklin, the great African-American historian and friend of mine who had had uh, written his doctoral dissertation about free blacks in North Carolina, and he had written about Thomas Day, and I, I knew about that and his perspective, but that was not the day I was being told about. So at first I wasn't really that interested. Um, and I became interested in the early 1990s when a, a group of uh, ladies in Yanceyville who, who ran a very active Thomas Day Association uh, invited me to come and talk in this small North Carolina town near the Virginia border um, where near where Day had owned a, a, a shop in little town of Milton, North Carolina. Uh, they asked me to come talk about the context of Thomas Day's life and and the uh, particularly the African American context. It was not something they had learned much about. It hadn't been part of this earlier definition of Thomas Day. And one of the people at that meeting, in fact, was a, a freelance uh, filmmaker and documentary maker named Laurel Sneed. And I got to know Laurel. And she, for, from a very different direction, was becoming fascinated and by Thomas Day and realizing that his story unlocked lots of new things about Southern history for her as a white Southern woman and but also uh, she thought rightly that this could be a wonderful key for for middle school students and for and that that and she went on to organize something called the Thomas Day Education Project which uh, trains people in uh, trains it was summer institutes for teachers so that they could then go back and teach about Thomas Day and use him as a way to deal with um, with race relations and uh, from an interesting perspective and and I've been actively involved in that and most of what I've learned about Thomas Day has come from research that she and others around her have done now you've mentioned uh freelance filmmaker, a trained historian, a organization of uh, interested community leaders, all these various points of um, groupings of people who are attracted to this Thomas Day. What do you make of that kind of draw that his story has? For folks in, in various parts of our of our culture of our life experience. Well, for one thing, it's a different story. I think so many of us who have even a passing interest in Black history have, uh, and, and certainly those who have less than a passing interest have have fairly um, generalized stereotypical views about. Slavery, about race relations, about and uh, 
And it's only when you begin to dig more deeply or to focus more specifically as we're now doing on individual lives that you begin to see the the complexities, the diversities of the of the black experience, you know. And so, for you know, what I was uh, coming along in the '60s and '70s, even just learning about and teaching the distinctions between enslaved blacks and free blacks, or between free blacks in the South and and free people of color in the North, uh, those were. Uh, levels of distinction that we could parse out and people were writing interesting books discussing them doing research but but because of that more than a generation now of research uh, we're now at a position where we've got two options one is to say this is great this is all we needed to know that was a good effort we now we can move on to other things mm -hmm. and there are people following that track and God bless them. But there are plenty of other folks, especially younger people coming along, who are realizing, whoa, this is just the beginning. I mean, this is pretty interesting as it is, but we still have hardly penetrated to... It. So if you're one of those people, if you have also studied European history or, or American history of some place or era or group, you realize that history is an endless project you're always finding new new tools new new uh, documents new ways of looking at things but you realize that the further down you dig the more interesting it becomes so we're now just reaching the point where we can do biographies of uh, black individuals that have some real substance to them and and this is i mean going beyond Booker T. Washington and Reverend King and Muhammad Ali and you know those biographies line the the shelves mm -hmm. in Walmart you know but but to find other lives uh, has always been more difficult but in the last generation we've freed ourselves to realize it can be done it's mm -hmm. worth doing and we should jump at every chance we get and and that is true of of a rebel like Nat Turner, or it's true of an entrepreneur like Thomas Day. And I choose those those two examples because those two very different men were born in Southside Virginia at almost exactly the same time in uh, around 1801. Uh, and Day was born in 1801. Uh, and, and, and they took very different routes, obviously. And you know, one, uh, Nat Turner was a slave, uh, uh, died early, uh, flamed out as a, an impressive, revolutionary, radical, uh, organizing, violent opposition to an institution that he opposed greatly. And 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 therefore is someone worth knowing about and understanding, even though he, he it's that's quite an exceptional route that most of us would not have had the nerve uh, to take. Day, on the other hand, is born in, born free uh, and follows a very different route, which you could call accommodationist. Or but he he 
he lives within the system and plays within the system but thinks about the system and questions the system in ways that we're only just beginning to learn about and so he gives us a window into if well, let me go back to Nat Turner we used to you know we, we used to oversimplify it by thinking about rebels and sambos you know i mean you either you're a serious uh, black power revolutionary or you're a total accommodationist Uncle Tom and and of course most people live their lives not on either of those extremes but somewhere in the middle and it's a very difficult middle it's not a complacent middle it's a it, it, it's a middle where you're having to think about the contradictory pressures that are all around you all the time and so so Day lives in this complicated world where he, where many of his ancestors are white, but he's not white. Where many of the African Americans he's identified with are enslaved, but he's not enslaved. Um, and he charts a very interesting course. And at the very center of it, and I should have said this sooner I think but but at the very center of it is a beautiful set of furniture I mean this man is creative and that's not so exceptional I suppose but the fact that what he created is so tangible and has survived so well and that we can actually see it is exceptional for an African American uh, and s from the antebellum period. And so to be able to have these beautiful creations from his shop in Milton, North Carolina, and which have been, which are on exhibit now at the, at the uh, State History Museum in Raleigh, a beautiful big uh, book of his, uh, of his furniture creations has been created to go with that exhibit. Uh, uh, the late Pat Marshall, who passed away this year, but was but completed this this uh, magnificent book as far magnificent as far as the furniture goes, as far as dealing with that material culture side of his world. But the other side of his world, his his intellectual and political makeup, is something that that we haven't gotten a good grip on yet. We're just beginning to. Mm -hmm. And what are some examples of the evidence that is kind of leading us to unravel more about the Day character and his affiliations with the abolitionist movement? Well, that's a great question. And like all historical research, it comes in little bits and pieces and but the pieces tend to add up you know if you find one or two they may be exceptions or we may be misreading them there may be a problem but if you find a begin to find a pattern then you really have to sit up and take notice and that seems to be what's happening that from this vision that I described from the 1970s of day as a as a complacent slaveholding entrepreneur whose goal is to make money and who is nearly as exploitative perhaps as some other non-black 
planters of the era. That rather one-sided picture is being complicated in wonderful ways. And by these um, individuals, Laurel Sneed, Patricia Rogers, others who have who have been really diligent and impressive in their sleuthing and in trying to put these pieces together. So one of the first things they learned was that they had a brother, an older brother named John, and that in fact he was he was highly literate and a member of the Baptist Church and that he eventually in 1830 uh, went to Liberia and became part of the colonization movement and became a leader, actually, and that a hundred of his letters are preserved in the Baptist archives in Nashville. Among those letters, most of which had to do with church affairs in Africa, was a letter that gave some of the family history and talked about the family. And that became one of the first keys, because then they could go back and make more sense out of his ancestry. And it's all been written up recently in a wonderful uh, booklet they prepared called The Hidden World of Thomas Day. Uh, and, and so I, I can only hit the highlights, but we know that his father was a, um, a free black uh, mixed-race mulatto carpenter with with very good skills but apparently with a fairly difficult life as was true of many free blacks in South South Virginia after the American Revolution that he apparently had a drinking problem and a gambling problem he was unable to hold on to the to the properties that he held his life it sounds as though his life was difficult but no question that he had that he had skills and that his wife also came from a very interesting and talented family. Um, her name was Morning Stewart, uh, M-O-U-R-N. Uh, and um, her father, we discover, was, uh, was actually classified as a doctor didn't have formal medical training so far as we know, but he was a significant figure in Dinwiddie County in that area of Southside Virginia. He owned a tavern. He owned a lot of property. He owned some slaves, and we'll come back to that complicated issue. And on both sides of the family, though it gets vague as you push further back in the genealogy, there were, there were, um, white ancestors as well as black and there was uh, there was a tradition of freedom and of education and of uh, craftsman skills uh, and of, of, of high self-respect I mean that this was a family that was going to um, um, protect itself against the odds and one of the ways of doing that was through education and so in learning more now about the early, the, the, not just the ancestors, but the early life of Thomas Day, we now know that both he and his brother were probably educated by Quakers, um, and that therefore they, 
they were were very literate they wrote very well their penmanship is very good their uh, they were able to to balance books and run uh, more than balance books you know run complicated businesses um, they were they were not just just shrewd by their ancestry but they were well trained in a way that we don't often expect when we think about blacks in the south in the early 19th century whether enslaved or free and, and there again we're we're learning how much more complicated the, the story is you've mentioned the hot button issue of a free black owning slaves common knowledge but still kind of an uncomfortable topic to to wrestle with how does that fact that he owns slaves complicate his narrative and and what does it also how does it relate to the character of Thomas Day as, as we well we we now know that that his uh, nearly white grandfather Dr. Stewart owned slaves uh, and we now know that he himself owned slaves when he was living in Milton and building this successful furniture-making establishment in the the 30s and 40s and 50s. We know that the number goes up from one or two to uh, to 10 or 12. I forget what the exact total is, but what we don't know is who those people were and how they were treated. And this is where the mystery comes in. Because on the one hand, he could have been Simon Legree and he could have driven them very hard and... and uh, um, had as little care for them as many uh, white planters. On the other hand, he could very well have been playing within the system and uh, and protecting people. And and this is what is hard to get a, a handle on. Uh, and and yet it makes perfect sense that someone with a Quaker education and an understanding that he's not going to take the Nat Turner route towards changing the world, but who is going to play within the law, but resist it in subtle ways rather than overt ways, could say, okay, I'm making beautiful furniture for an elite market. He was selling his goods uh, at the high end, not the low end. He, the governor of North Carolina, was one of his uh, clients. The University of North Carolina was another. Um, and when he took a contract with the University of North Carolina, his was not the lowest bid. It was, it was higher, but he, on the grounds that he was going to do better work. So he was he was going to do good work, but if he could find people to work with him, um, and if the price was calling them slaves, if they were African American, he could say, "You're working with me. You're you're going to be listed as my slave. Uh, I am the boss here. You're going to do what I say, but I'm going to going to help you learn a trade. You know, you're going to you're going to be." well protected in my household you know you can't get out of line because I have a reputation to protect and so but if you can 
play within these rules that this is these are better rules than the rules you would get down the road on that tobacco plantation and so um, and we don't we don't know who these people were how they were treated or what became of them later what we can suspect is that many of them this may in a this is stating it too simply but this could have been a a far south station of the Underground Railroad. In other words, that you could, you could work for. We'll, we can explore that, but you could, you could work for this person, and then through his connections, you might move on to somewhere else closer to the border, and then you might cross over into the north, and you would have a skill there, and you could succeed. You could get out from under slavery, whereas, whereas a white planter might be inclined to see you move the other way toward, you know, get out of line, I'll sell you to Mississippi or something, further into the gulag, you know, whereas that was clearly not Day's intention. And I say clearly because I want to go back to the the evidence that's beginning to accumulate. You know, we talked about learning more about his um, ancestry and, and his upbringing, but Laurel Sneed and uh, Patricia Rogers and others have, uh, keep finding new evidence. So what do they find? They they put his name, you know, you can, you, part of it is not sophisticated. It's Google searches and things these days. And one of the entries that comes up when you type in Thomas Day is for 1835, William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator. Well, what was that all about? Well, it was in it was in July and August of 1835. The Liberator ran an ad from a Mrs. Serena Gardner who ran a boarding house at 13 Elizabeth Street in Philadelphia, and she published in this black and this abolitionist newspaper that is read by African Americans in the North. She published a thank you note from 21 prominent people who had stayed at her boarding house the month before, signed this note with their names, all men, and each one followed by where they were from. Um, and when you go through this list, uh, it includes some of the big hitters in, in uh, black culture. Uh, and it turns out that they were there for the fifth annual convention for the improvement of the free people of color in the United States. This was an annual meeting that had started. It was not necessarily an abolitionist meeting. It was a meeting of of important, uh, often young, uh, sharp-thinking African-Americans, leaders in their communities. And they would come together once a year and debate and discuss uh, the merits of colonization, the merits of education, the merits of of various kinds of political action to try to improve their situation. And so among the people signing this little note, which she published in The Liberator as an advertisement, were uh, John F. Cook from Washington, D.C., who was a prominent religious and political figure, uh, John Clawson from Newark, Samuel Hardenberg from New York, who had actually led the parade in the 1820s when New York celebrated the, the end of slavery in, in New York. 
William G. Hamilton from New York, another early black uh, leader in the community, Charles Raymond from uh, Salem, Massachusetts, who is a, a, a leader among, uh, becomes a leader among black abolitionists in New England, William Whipper from Pennsylvania, Joseph Roberts, who had migrated from Petersburg, Virginia to Liberia uh, almost at the same time that Thomas Day's brother had migrated. These are interesting figures, even though we don't know their names very well today. And then right underneath that, the last name, Thomas Day, North Carolina. Bingo. Wow. What is that all about? Well, you know, one possibility is that this, this is not an uncommon name. So how many Thomas Days were there in North Carolina? Well, it turns out there were four or five, you know, but three of them were white, you know, and another one uh, was illiterate. And, you know, so the, the odds that this was the Thomas Day of Milton, North Carolina, are overwhelming. He often traveled north, that Philadelphia and Baltimore were furniture production centers, as was Petersburg, Virginia. Um, he, so to, to uh, learn more about the industry, to buy materials that he needed to obtain patent books and, and pattern books that he could use, um, equipment that he could use. He was part of a generation that was um, industrializing, if you will, the furniture business, that they were moving from from simply the saw and the chisel to more mechanized ways of producing furniture, cutting furniture from patterns. And he was he was having the best of both worlds in creating his sort of niche market. He wanted to create very high-end, well-done furniture, but he wanted to produce it, uh, mass produce might be too too strong a word, but he wanted to be able to produce it rapidly and locally to reduce transportation costs so that he could tell these rich planters in North Carolina, I can sell you a better dining room table or sideboard than anything you could purchase in Philadelphia because the shipping costs you would have to pay are prohibitive and my work's just as good anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can trust me. Uh, trust was an absolutely crucial part of his career. He understood, as, as other free black entrepreneurs did, that, that the deck was stacked against them. The best that most white folks could say was that most free blacks are untrustworthy and incompetent, but so-and-so is different because he's a friend of mine, and I'll stand up for him, but I'm not don't think I'm standing up for everybody, you know, I'm just so, so Day again and again would get uh, these sort of personal recommendations that, you know, you may not think he's going to be good, but he is, you know, he's very trustworthy, his furniture is very good he, but, but his politics is very good too good in quotation marks from the perspective of the planter class they felt they could trust this man uh, so, and so that's what makes this story so interesting to find him showing up at uh, Serena Gardner's boarding house, signing this letter, which I'm sure that he thought was just a nice thank you note for Mrs. Gardner, and then having her turn around and publish it in the Liberator. Of course, 
the Liberator was prohibited in the South, so the odds of this letter actually being seen in North Carolina were limited, I guess. But it did. It occurs to me that if you know, if he were living in a Facebook age, he would have been outed in fifteen minutes. You know, I mean, the the in one of one different aspect of the antebellum world was that you could go to Philadelphia and attend a meeting like this and and the planter class in North Carolina was not likely even to know about it as long as you didn't broadcast your activities. So so we know about that. We know one of the people I mentioned at this meeting, John Cook, uh, we now know from further sleuthing that 15 years later, in 1850, when Day goes to Washington, he visits with Cook, he stays with uh, one of, with Cook's, I believe it's his aunt or another one of his family members, a woman who was a very, very strong in the, in the anti-slavery movement, I mean, and that he takes his children with him. And beyond that, another dot on the graph is that we now know that he was sending his he had three children and they were sent in the 1840s to a to school in the north and and not just in the north but to a an, an abolitionist school in western Massachusetts that had a known reputation for its wide open policies in terms of who it who it admitted and whom they and, and what kinds of things they were being taught, um, and that he had a, a close relationship with the people running that school in the sense that he, in a letter to his daughter, he writes, you know, give my love to so and so, the one of the masters at the school, or so you know that that it's clear that he knows what he's doing here and he's in touch with these people. And we then know another piece of the puzzle that two of those children end up in Wilmington, North Carolina at the end of the Civil War organizing union leagues and teaching recently freed blacks even before the end of the war in the in the winter and spring of 18, uh, uh, 1865. They're already there and active and Wilmington is a particularly um, active uh, anti-slavery spot in North Carolina. Always has been. It was the home of David Walker. It's the uh, it's uh, it's the home of Al- man in Galloway, who was uh, who was less known still, but equally fascinating. And and they're right there, you know. So so. These are the pieces that are now falling into place that that help us see something about about who day was. I don't like asking yes or no <laughs> questions. <laughs> However, this conversation could lead one to ask a question like, "Was Thomas Day an abolitionist?" And it, I, mean, I think I, it's tough. Right? I I would say yes. So that's easy in this. Now, that immediately gets difficult because of the funny ideas we have about abolitionism. But what are you asking, really? You're asking, did this man believe in slavery or think that race slavery should be ended? 
I would say definitively that he wanted to end slavery. You know, could he, did he want to end it tomorrow morning by killing everyone who owned slaves? No, no, he didn't. He was, he was, he, he was not only mostly white, he was mostly southern white in his ancestry. And we know about these people who were the free blacks of the South, that some of them, as I've said before, were very, almost outmastered the masters, but that others of them were were very creative in figuring out the ways to not only to work the system, but to keep their ideals alive at the same time. And I think this Quaker-trained furniture maker has very high ideals. He doesn't want his children to have the same experience he had. He wants it to be different. And to me, an analogy would be living behind the Iron Curtain in the 20th century. Some people tried to escape and get out and risk their lives, and other people tried to combat the system and risk their lives, and other people realized that because of their particular personality or skills or place in the world that they that they couldn't leave or wouldn't leave or that they were did that make them a failure no it meant they had a place to serve in the puzzle there was a role they could play that was different from the role the exile would play or the escapee or the you know but it was different from the role that the Uncle Tom or the subservient person was playing or the enslaved person was playing. So, so, and this is what's exciting to me about Day. I mean, because we, he's, he's an exceptional person. He's left an exceptional record. We can follow his trail a little better than we can many other free blacks. But I think by understanding him better, we will then start to think more carefully about people who were free and supposedly slaveholders living in the antebellum South. We know a lot about white abolitionists in the North. We know a lot about now about black abolitionists in the North. And when I say black, I mean all shades of color and of non-persons of color who were had astute awareness, sometimes firsthand, sometimes secondhand, of what the slavery experience was all about. But we don't have much knowledge yet of people like Day and this even more complex, interesting, and I would argue central role that they played. It was an invisible role. By definition, they had to play their cards very tight. This was not... Frederick Douglass escaping from Maryland to the north and then being able to stand up mm-hmm. uh, 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 on a soapbox and shout to the world what needed to be changed. These were people who had to play behind the scenes, if you will. One of the interesting pieces that's fallen into place recently is we now know a lot more about Thomas Day's white minister in the Presbyterian Church in Milton, the church congregation that he and his wife, Aquila, joined in 1841. Day actually built the pews for the church. The, the 
day Bible that has been passed down through the family is inscribed by the minister as given to his friend Thomas Day. Um, and we now know more about this minister. Well, who was he? Well, he came from Maine. He was a sailor from Maine, from Brunswick, Maine, who was shipwrecked off the coast of North Carolina and, and came to religion that way, as many sailors do. Um, shifted careers, uh, uh, became quite a well-trained uh, minister, and and practiced in several areas of North Carolina and ended up in Milton. And But we also know that he went back to Brunswick, Maine uh, every year or two to see relatives. And not surprisingly, when he was there, he would be grilled about what he thought about slavery and where did he stand on this issue and what was going on. But don't forget Brunswick, Maine was where Harriet Beecher Stowe lived when she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's where Bowdoin College is, which was cranking out uh, uh, liberal-minded young abolitionists at a great rate, a very interesting school um, and a very interesting community. And we know from some of the, the records that have now been unearthed that that this man was ambivalent, that he, you can see him wrestling with the issue. One year he'll say, I think colonization's the way to go. And then he'll come back and say, no, actually, I think, I think we need to do away with slavery. And then he'll come back another year and say, no, we've, don't, don't put all your eggs in the abolitionist basket. You know, that's too, you know. And it's clear that he's wrestling with these things. He's wrestling with it in relation to his, friends and and family in Maine, but also in terms of his parishioners, white and free black in rural North Carolina. So he's he's walking a complicated line, just the way his parishioner Thomas Day is walking a complicated line. And this is not just any parishioner. I mean, this is a man who has emerged very quickly as one of the prominent figures in this small town. I mean, he's set up one of the largest businesses. He has bought up land. Um, he has he has really established himself in that community. I think that's one of the reasons he doesn't leave. You know? I think uh, that he, he did have roots there. He had, he had family there. Uh, uh, and and I think we, we get a sense from some of his letters to his children that he, he says at one point, I had I moved to Milton in the 1820s, I guess. He said, I only intended to stay four years, and I've now stayed four times seven years. You know? So mm-hmm. so he, he he was aware that he was staying, but he also had obviously thought of other options. But he had chosen this role, and and now we're just beginning to understand it and appreciate it in all its complexity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. It is. It fascinating really is. story. It, it really <laughs> is. And the more we... And this is what I like about it is that when you get hold of a thread like this and start to pull it, you see it, it tests you and your friends and your students and you as to whether they say oh great let's dig a little deeper or whether they say oh no this is this doesn't fit with what i thought before so let's stay right where we are mm-hmm. and 
and I think it's safe to say North Carolina is, I mean, they're the only folks so far who really know much about Thomas Day, and so they're deciding whether to pull on this thread further and whether to, you know, let's, should we see if we can learn more? And if we do, what does it say about what we used to think 10 years ago or 20 years ago or not to mention 100 years ago? Mm-hmm. You know, so we're, so it's, he's, he's a wonderful uh, test for us to see if we can really um, open up our eyes, deal with the evidence, not not jump to conclusions one way or the or the other. And so, obviously, if you ask me, is he an abolitionist? And I say, yes, he is. That immediately allows someone to say, oh, that's a simplistic conclusion. You're jumping over to the other side of the fence. I want to be right in the middle. I want to be able. I want to see. So far, I may find other evidence that changes me, but I see Thomas Day with one foot in each of these worlds, you know, and that's a that's an incredibly difficult posture to maintain over decades, you know, where that you still are doing business with these prominent clients, but you still have uh, a sense of who you are and where you belong and that you're not the mudsill for society. Now, that said... That's di- a difficult stance, but that is a huge chunk of African American history. Right? I mean, that that is not a version of life that is foreign to many African Americans even today, and certainly to many of the ancestors. You know, who in one situation or another had to be deferential and hardworking and productive and were being held to a tougher standard than anyone else and all those things on the one hand, but also had to be maintaining a sense of of their own dignity and worth even when the society around them was not reinforcing that. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, he becomes a very typical uh, uh, figure and, and someone who should be known, I hope, way outside of Piedmont, North Carolina, but all over the country. Mm-hmm. Do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to leave us with about Thomas Day? I think uh, I can think of a couple, but one would simply be that that we can't forget the beauty and the craftsmanship that is at the heart of his work. I mean, this is someone else, whatever his politics and his religion and his family life were all about, this was someone who came out of a, a, a craftsman's tradition. You know, his his father had been a carpenter before him. His brother, uh, who went off to Africa, John Day, had been trained as a furniture maker as well, um, and he had he had wonderful business skills and obviously to go with it and to be able to make a business out of it but he had an eye and an aesthetic that i still find very compelling and we know, i've mentioned that he that he um you know he was he was producing furniture for often from patterns but he was also doing individual mantelpieces and newel posts and banisters and things. It, so there are individual houses in the area of Milton and Yanceyville still to this day that have very distinctive uh, Thomas Day uh, carvings and and uh, some 
people feel they can see a little African influence in them, and some people say, no, no, not so much, but there's no question that he had an eye. He had an eye for wood. He had an eye for design. Um, he, he was someone whom I would have loved to have met simply on those, on those grounds. Um, but the other, another lesson that I've been learning out of this is, one more time, is just not to put too much trust in mainstream historians. You know, the, everything I've been telling you is almost completely uh, things that have been unearthed by, by people interested in him as an individual, as a furniture maker, as a, as a free black man. Um, and, and they have been really impressively persistent and, and imaginative in their research, you know, and they've outstripped the academic historians in this instance, and I think uh, we can think of other instances where this has happened as well, but it's always, uh, it's not just a cautionary tale, it's inspiring, you know, when you see that that history is not rocket science. It's open to anybody who really wants to try to to dig into the past, and that's been exciting. I, I guess the only other lesson I take away from this, since we're chatting in New York City, would be to not to stay in the North, come South. You know, so many of the of the important stories. There's there's a there's some beautiful books that have been written lately about the out migration from the South. You know, and we're just beginning to appreciate how the country as a whole became blacker in the 20th century, you know, but when you push back into the 19th century, um, you're pushing back into the South, you know, and you're, and so that process of, that's where most trails in African American history lead, and that's where that's where the the records are. That's where the interest is in some ways. And yes, is there resistance to to digging into these new stories in in fresh ways? Sure, there is. You know, but not nearly as much as there was thirty years ago, or sixty years ago, or hundred years ago. And and so the excitement of of uh, doing this kind of Southern history, not you know, to some extent, it's Black history, but it's but it's Southern history and it's American history, and we're really just beginning. Wonderful! Thank you, Peter Wood. Thank you. Thank you, Donna, for chatting with me. <laughs>